Thank you so much. God bless you tonight. Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter number 2. Revelation, chapter 2 tonight. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 8. And and as you're turning there, I certainly would like to say thank you so much to Brother Reno and to Berean Baptist Church. And and, uh, what a great, great time for me to be here these days. It's uh, I appreciate so much the labor and the work and the giving you've done to make such a comfortable place. And uh, I'm thankful. I appreciate it so much. And then, of course, your pastor is just a tremendous host. He's so gracious and generous. And and uh, just uh, is a, I love the fellowship with your pastor. He's positive. He's a blessing. And and uh, just an encouragement in the things of the Lord. And and uh, I appreciate so much your giving, your graciousness. Thank you. And uh, it's just an honor, as always, to be a Berean Baptist Church. If I could just encourage you to stay faithful to the Word and stay faithful to our Savior. Uh, these are great times to double our efforts and say, for the king, we'll be about the master's business. God bless you as you labor for him. We'll be looking forward to seeing many of you men here at least in a few weeks uh, in Yelm. And trust the Lord will give us a great time there as he always seems to do. And, and uh, that you just keep going forward for Christ in times like these. Thank you so much for being so good to me. You have your Bible tonight to the book of Revelation chapter 2 and and in verse number 8 the Lord Jesus is ready to pen a letter and send it unto the angel of the church in Smyrna. Of course we preached uh, on Sunday that angel is a word for the pastor, your pastor, your angel, your star, your bishop. There's a lot of words for him and uh, the world's got words for him too but thankfully the Bible's got a better choice. So the Lord Jesus now is, of course, from the mouth of God heard the words of God uh, to the Lord Jesus, the word of God, who by the spirit of God delivers them to Pastor John on the island of Patmos. You know, that's why we love every single word of the Bible. The Bible's not the thoughts of God. It's not simply the thinking of God or the philosophy of God, but every single word of God is true. Our confidence is in absolutely every one of the words of the Bible. So those words were given to Pastor John and he dutifully wrote them down and now the first copy of that book of Revelation was sent to a church in a city called Ephesus. There the pastor made sure that it was copied, copied correctly and and now the second edition, I guess, the same words, don't misunderstand, preserved and perfect are being sent along to a church in a city called Smyrna. Smyrna was a beautiful city in a beautiful part of the world. In fact, even today, the city of Smyrna is one of the largest cities in the land of Turkey. If that city was in the United States, it'd be the third largest city in our country. Uh, It's a massive, massive place. And now to this church in Smyrna, this beautiful place, why the Lord Jesus has a letter to his pastor and his church. So if you're able physically tonight, could I invite you to stand together with me? And in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but I love these words, but thou art rich. Only God could look at a church and say you're full of poverty, but you are rich. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us now and and may the word of God stir up the hearts, the minds, the people of Berean Baptist Church. 
And Father, in this day where there's so much compromise and turning from God's word, I pray you would find a church of people that would join their pastor and be strong in the word of God. Now, if someone in this room tonight has never been saved, may this be the night they flee from the wrath to come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. So we ask for your help in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. As the letters are being delivered to the seven different pastors of these churches, it's, it's fascinating to get a little taste of the character of the city. Of course, the first letter was sent to the pastor of a church in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus has a great history in the Bible, and, and what we know about the city of Ephesus is that they were worshipers of the goddess Diana. I mean, you can almost turn your Bible to the book of Acts, and, and you can almost sense those words rising right out of the Bible as the Ephesians cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. They bowed their knee to a pagan idol, an idol of a goddess by the name of Diana. She was the great god, the goddess of the city of Ephesus. And as you go to every one of these seven cities, it seems like each one of them has a different god that they worship, a god that is in control. For the city of Ephesus, it was great as Diana of the Ephesians. But when you come to the city of Smyrna, well, there was a smattering of religion, and they certainly had temples like every other city. They would bow down and worship pagan gods and pagan goddesses. But you know, it wasn't quite like the city of Ephesus, where there was one goddess, Diana, that everybody worshipped. However, there was one ruling god in the city of Smyrna. The city of Smyrna and their religion was called the imperial cult. You know, this kind of works this way in America. From state to state, there are religions that dominate certain states. Why, you, of course, could go to the state of Utah, and the religion of Mormonism dominates. In most parts of Texas, the religion of the Southern Baptist Convention dominates. Uh, you can go to Wisconsin and Minnesota, and in most of those little towns, it's the religion of Lutheranism that dominates. Where I grew up in the Northeast, well, it was Roman Catholicism. That pretty much was the dominant religion. And you can find states in America, pockets of religion, and, and they might dominate a state like Utah. They might dominate a state like a, a Texas or a Georgia or a Minnesota. But there are many states in America that were like the city of Smyrna, where the chief religion was not so much a temple or a god or a goddess. The chief religion was the worship of their government. It's called the imperial cult, and it was the religion that dominated the city of Smyrna. I'm afraid there's some states in America where they have pretty much abandoned any kind of formal religion, but they certainly bow their knee to the houses of government. And instead of respecting government and treating government correctly, there are a lot of people that look to government as the god of their lives. And that was certainly the story in the city of Smyrna. It was the chief religion not only of the Roman Empire, but also of this city. In fact, as you come to the end of the first century, the Roman emperor ruling the world is a man by the name of Domitian, one of the worst of them all. You know, one by one, the Roman emperors proclaimed themselves as gods. They claimed, I want to be worshipped as a god and called a god, but none of them were quite, quite like Domitian. When he ascended the throne, he called himself the father of the gods. He insisted that everyone around him call him my lord and my god. He demanded prayers and incense and vows. 
But what made it even worse is that Domitian demanded that around the Roman Empire, once a year, people pledged their vow and their loyalty to Rome. They would have a special service. And at this service, it was required of the citizens that they would take a cup of incense and toss it in the air. And as they did, they were required to say these words, Caesar is Lord. And you know, for virtually all religious people, they didn't have a problem with that. Because to tell you the truth, the religions of the first century, well, they all had multiple gods. You could worship that god. You could worship that goddess. You could go to that shrine. You could go over there. And, and to add the Roman emperor to a big, broad list of your gods, well, that wasn't a problem. One more god never bothered them. And that pretty much works for every religion except for Bible Christianity. Because the Bible says there is room for no other god. There are no knees to be bowed to some false god or some false goddess god is not going to live in tandem with another god god is not going to share the throne with a government god is not going to be seated with the roman emperor with the president of the united states with the prime minister of england nor with any king nor with any potentate nor with any ruler that has ever lived it is god and god alone who sits upon the throne every other religious person wouldn't have a problem all i've got to do to get the government off my back all I've got to do to have peace and quietness and prosperity, all I have to do is just take a cup of incense, throw it up, and all I have to say is Caesar is Lord. They didn't have a problem, but the child of God had a great problem with that. And the people that were in this humble little church in Smyrna, they said, we can't do this. We can't say that Caesar is Lord. Oh, you can almost hear their friends come along, and, and you can imagine some of the excuses because it was well known that you didn't even have to believe what you were saying. The Caesar didn't care. The Roman emperor didn't care if you believed it or not. How is he going to take a look into your heart anyhow? It didn't matter whether they believed it in their hearts so long as they said it with their tongue. And that's why everybody else would say, all I have to do is go to this ceremony. All I have to do is say Caesar is Lord and I can make my money. I can have my fun and games. I can live my life with ease. That's all I have to say. I don't have to believe it. I don't have to trust it. I don't have to hold it in my heart. But if I say it with my tongue, isn't that all it takes? And the Christians couldn't do it. They couldn't do it because Jesus is Lord not the Roman government. Jesus is Lord, not the Caesar in Rome. And for that reason, they paid a great price. Oh, you understand how people must have said, you don't have to believe us, just say the words. Just say the words, and people wouldn't understand. I can imagine when the law came down, you know, and we're going to have the ceremony, and you've got to confess Caesar is Lord. You know, the Daniels of the world wouldn't have had a problem, would they? They knew precisely what to do. The Hananiah, Mishael's, and or Azariah's, they got that taken care of. But, you know, I can almost imagine what it must have sounded like. You know, all you've got to do is say these words, and, and anyway, the Lord knows my heart. You know, you really never ought to say that. And I really never ought to say that because do you know why he really does know our heart? And that's the problem. You know, well, you know, Brother Reno, I'd be faithful to church, but the Lord knows my heart. You know, Brother Reno, I'd give commissions, but the Lord knows my heart. You know, 
know, Brother Reno, I pray, but the Lord knows my heart. That's exactly the problem. He does know our heart. And we may fool our pastors and we may fool our family, but there's not one of us that have ever fooled Almighty God. And you can imagine people saying, all you've got to do is just say these words. You don't have to believe it. All you have to do is say the words. I wonder if they didn't dial 1-800-CHRISTIAN-LAWYER, you know? And I never would have thought of this. I couldn't have had this in the furthest reaches of my imagination. But I wonder if there wasn't somebody that came up with this. You know, if you don't obey the law and say Caesar is Lord, you're going to be a bad testimony. No, I say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about exactly what we've heard for the last year and a half. Oh, no, 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 no. We don't have to assemble as an assembly, even though the Bible says forsake not the assembling. Because if you assemble, you're going to be a bad testimony. And everybody's going to know you don't respect the law. And everybody, you're just going to be a bad testimony. I wonder if that one didn't come up. I wonder if they didn't come up with all the crazy things that we've heard for a year and a half as to why people can disobey God and the word of God. You don't even have to mean it. All you have to do is throw some incense in the air. All you have to do is say Caesar is Lord. And there was a small, humble little church in Smyrna, and they wouldn't do it. Now the Bible tells us it's time to pay a tremendous price for these people. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, God said when you're saved, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now these people wouldn't do it. And so living in a city where government is God, living in a city where government is the king, living in the city where they are expected to bow their knee and to pay their homage and to worship the emperor of Rome. When these people wouldn't do it, the Bible says in verse number 10, Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. What a stunning thing. Because when I read verse number 10, the Bible tells us that Jesus tells the church, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Now, wait a minute. It wasn't the devil that cast them into prison. It was the Roman government that did that. It was the Roman government who arrested these Christians. It was the Roman government that would put these Christians on trial. Ultimately, it was the Roman government that would execute them. But it's fascinating that God says, though the Roman government may be the ones that execute the plan, ultimately it is Satan himself that is doing the work. This is an awfully hard thing for people to grasp. But do you remember the story in the book of Luke when Jesus and Satan are on the mountain? Satan is tempting Christ. Of course, first it's command the stones be made bread. Man shall not live by bread alone. And then from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, cast yourself down. Let the world see the angels carry you. And Satan, of course, misquotes the Bible and, and Jesus corrects him again. But then they are on top of a mountain. And in Luke, the Bible says that in a moment of time, Jesus and Satan visit the kingdoms of the world. In Bible times, kingdoms are what we call governments. So one by one, they go to the great cities of the world, to the great kingdoms of the world. And when it is all said and done on top of the mountain, there are two stunning things that happen. First, it is Satan's stunning words to Jesus. When he said, all these kingdoms have been delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I will give it. Now, that's quite the stunning thing for Satan to basically tell Jesus, you know, the kingdoms used to be yours, and I stole them, and now they belong to me. And I have the power to give those kingdoms unto anyone. So if you will bow down and worship me, you won't have to die on a cross. If you'll bow your knee and confess me as God, then right now you can be the ruler over these kingdoms. It is stunning that Satan would make that statement. But to me, it's more stunning that Jesus never corrected him.
See, sometimes it's kind of stunning, isn't it? When you shake your head, but what is it about what that makes you sick? And on a smaller scale, for you folks, what is it about Olympia, where I live in Arizona? What is it about Washington Street in Phoenix? What is it about these places? I mean, a very normal, decent person will run for office in South Hill, Washington. Then all of a sudden, they'll go to Washington, D.C., and they'll do something entirely different. I mean, we watch it all the time. Uh, somebody will run for president and say, you know, I believe a family is one man and one woman. And then when the states voted on it, 33 out of 34 of them got it right. And then all of a sudden, with the signature on an executive order, a president will say, well, now a marriage is something entirely different. What happens? How can somebody stand here in Washington and tell you one thing and then go to that Washington and do something else? Because, folks, we don't appreciate the enormous pressure, that satanic pressure. You know, we kind of got the idea, you know, I got a backache today. Boy, Satan's really giving me a hard time, you know. And my boss was yelling at me, and my teacher at school was giving me, oh, Satan's really, really persecuting me. And, and we, don't for, we forget that Satan's in one place at one time. And I know, you know, you're really important, and I know I'm really important. But there may be a couple of people out there that are higher up the totem pole than you and me. And that's why Satan can only be in one place at one time. Of course, he has his demons and his forces, but in one place at one time. It's why he's going to concentrate his efforts on people in Washington. He's going to deal with some guy in North Korea. He's going to deal with the leaders of the world, with the political places. It's because he rules governments. It's that's where he gets his authority. That's where he gets his power. That's why you can watch one despot and one dictator rise throughout history. They don't even have the support of the people. They don't even have the crowd behind them. But they do have Satan behind them. And there are so many horrific acts have been committed because Satan does his business in the halls of government. Whatever it means, they have been delivered unto him. And that's why when you come to verse number 10, you and I would expect it to read, the Roman government shall cast some of you into prison. The Roman government shall put you on trial. The Roman government shall give you tribulation 10 days. But God goes right to the heart of the matter. Though the government may be the executor, the Bible tells us that the work is being done by Satan. Satan is ruling in the governments of this world. But you know, there is another place where Satan does his business. Look in verse number 9, where the end of that verse says, And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. So there were two great enemies against this little, little assembly in the city of Smyrna. Just a little thing. I mean, they didn't have a big building. They didn't have a fancy temple. Churches in New Testament days, none of them had a building like this. How could you? When you got saved, you lost your job. When you got saved, your family turned against you. A lot of the people had to run like fugitives. I mean, you lost absolutely everything. There are no beautiful buildings like this in Pakistan. Of course, if you're a Christian in Pakistan, I mean, your job, if you can get a job, you might be able to carry out the garbage and sweep the streets. And so it was in a place like Smyrna. They had nothing. Anything they had was long gone the day that they were saved. And you would think that you got this humble little assembly, probably 50 people, who knows the crowd, that would have been kind of average in the first century. You got this humble little assembly. They don't have any authority. They don't have any power. Nobody's running for office. Don't you think the government would have said, well, who cares? Don't those people over there want to be weird? They don't want to say Caesar is Lord. It doesn't bother me. I mean, don't you think the religions of the day would come along and say, well, what are we concerned about that little group for? 
But the Bible says in verse number 9, they were not only under the assault of the government of Rome, they were also under the assault of the religious crowd. Those who say they are Jews and are not. That's kind of a common thing in Revelation 2 and 3, and, and it's also found in other parts of the New Testament. Because to God, the real Jew, the real son of Abraham, was that Jewish person that had confessed Christ as the Messiah. They were the ones that bowed their knee, and while most Judaism does not, one day they will turn to the Savior, and one day they will come to him. One day they will be what God says, the ones who are Jews and really are Jews. And so the religious attacks was not only coming from the Roman government, but from the Jewish religious hierarchy. Do you find that stunning? When Satan attacks a New Testament church, number one, it is either by government forces or number two, it is by religious forces. But as the Bible tells us that the government is not the one doing it, it's ultimately Satan. So in verse number nine, these religious persecutors are the synagogue of Satan. You know, the Bible tells us that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. And if you want to know where Satan's forces are, predominantly, you don't need to go to the barn. You don't need to go to the house of sin. The Bible says they look like angels of light. And that's what makes it so deceiving. Because if you were to ask the average person, what do you, what do you think the devil looks like? And what do you think the demons look like? And they'll say, oh, yeah, they got these pointed ears, you know, they got this red outfit. They got a tail out the back. They got a pitchfork, and, and they're in hell, and they're shishkebobbing people. I don't know what they think. But, you know, the devil and his demons are not in hell. They've never yet been to hell. They don't wear red outfits. They don't have horns, and they don't have tails. Do you know what they look like? Ministers of righteousness. Where Satan gets his greatest advances in government and in religion. The greatest opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ is found in religion. If you doubt my word, then send an email to any one of your missionaries in any other distant land, and they'll tell you one by one how the religious community, the religious forces have combined against them. Religion hates the true gospel of the word of God. If it is not government, then it is religion, and they are after a people of God. A few years ago, I was preaching in the country of China, and, and there I met a guy, we'll just call him Jimmy tonight, and, and what a testimony. You know, sitting one day, and, and Pastor Jimmy's pastoring in a massive city in China, which isn't saying much because they're all massive cities. And, and we were sitting at lunch one day. I said, Brother Jimmy, give me your testimony. And he told me that he was a medical student heading towards a career as a doctor, and the Lord saved him. And when the Lord saved him, God called him to preach. And, and to the regret of his family, he turned his back on it all started to train with a missionary to preach the word of God and to build Baptist churches. Well, in that city, he started a church, and God blessed the work, and it began the mushroom. And, and he said, we got to the place where there were 275 adults, plus we had a number of children. He said, we were able to start a Christian school. And, and you know, I, he said, I had to tell people when they wanted their kids come to our school, you need to know this is not a government-sanctioned school, so your children will never go to our school and get a scholarship the only reason that you put them in our school is because you want the Bible and not propaganda. He said, we've got 75 students in our school. Well, as we were talking, 
he began to talk about some of the persecution that he had faced. Five times Brother Jimmy had been thrown in jail. Five times. He said the fifth time they came in on a Sunday morning service and they not only arrested my buddy, they arrested his wife as well. And I said, well, what did you do? He said, well, that's when we kind of figured it out. And so our church of roughly 300 people became six churches of 50 people scattered around our city. I said, well, Brother Jimmy, I said, who is it? You know, and I have this idea kind of growing up in America and the Cold War and all that stuff. I got this idea that, you know, in Game Jimmy, there's some tiny, some old guy with a hat with a star on him, you know. And he's been plucking around for you Christians, and I'm going to find you. And, and he said, well, you know, that kind of happens sometimes. But sometimes there's a government official that's a little, a little bit on the war path. But he told me, he said, almost every time that's not what happens. I said, well, where does all your trouble come from? And he says, well, our trouble comes from three things. Number one, it might come from a neighbor because the singing is too loud and they complain and the government does something about it. Number two, it, it might happen. It might happen because somebody gets upset in a church and they leave. Now, we call it church hopping in America. He called it church jumping in China. So sometimes somebody will get mad. They'll leave the church and they'll call the authorities on the church. He said, we've had that happen. But he said, almost every other time, most of the time, our problems came from what is called the three-step church. That is the approved, communist-approved church cult of religion is what I would call it in China. The ministers are all populist preachers who preach a very happy message, a very popular message, a, a, a message that will never condemn sin. That word is not in the vocabulary. Oh, you'll never hear a message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But it is a congregation of religious people where a happy message and a positive message is preached week after week. And Brother Jimmy told me, you sit in that place and you'll never hear the gospel. Well, he said, many times we have people come and we preach the word of God and they hear you must be born again. And when they are truly saved, they become awfully upset that they sat for years in a state-approved house of religion and never heard the gospel. So they leave that place, they get baptized, they become part of our church. He said, most of the time that I have gone to jail, it has been the result of the minister of the three self church that went to the authorities because one of their church members was truly saved and they left that false house of religion. Exactly what's happening here in Smyrna. On one side, here's the Roman government saying, you will, excuse me, you will throw some incense into the air and we will hear you say, Caesar is Lord. You will say, Caesar is Lord. And if you don't, you're going to pay the price. But if it wasn't them, here come the religious authorities and the religious bosses. Oh, i got to promise you, if you think you got some hierarchy on the job, if you think there's some political scheme where you work, you haven't seen anything until you see the religious powerhouses. And my, can the religious bosses, can the religious authorities ever put some people under their thumb and grind them into the ground? And for the church in Smyrna, living in a city where the imperial cult, the government was God, their problems came from the Roman emperor and from the religious experts. And all they were was just a little humble assembly. Well, in verse number nine, Jesus had a message to this little church. He said, first, I know thy works. 
That church was laboring for Christ. But not only did he say, I know thy works, he said, I know thy tribulation. We should notice that word is not tribulations. It is not that they were facing troubles. Tribulation is the story of their existence. It's not like once or twice a year they had to deal with this. They're dealing with it absolutely every day. They are being pressured. They are the enormous pressure. They are under assault on every side. The tribulation never goes away. Tribulation is the manner of their life. And if it wasn't just tribulation, the Bible says is poverty. That word is a word that goes beyond poor. These people are destitute. These people don't know where the next meal comes from. Can you imagine the deafness of their life on a Sunday and the rest of them Sunday night and Muslim countries around the world today that meeting obviously for worship and so the people will gather on a Sunday night after work and and I was in one such church in a, in, a, in a Muslim country in the Middle East not too long ago. And, and what a service. Didn't understand a word they said, but sometimes you do anyway. You know what I mean? And walking into that place and what a night it was. I, I remember getting in my rental car thinking, how am I ever going to find this thing? You know, if Mr. Google ever got it right, this would be a good time right now. And, and I found myself in the middle of Amman, Jordan, on the side of a street. Just a small little street. And I got to tell you, I had no idea where I was. And I wondered if the Lord knew where I was. And, you know, supposedly in that building over there, there's supposed to be an independent Baptist church, the only one in the whole country. And, and I'm sitting there, and obviously there's no sign on the road. There's nothing going on. And I sat there an hour early, and I just sat in my car, and the sky was just darker and darker. And I'm thinking, Lord, where in the world are you? And I got to tell you, you don't know the greatest thing I've just seen in a long time. There's this guy and this lady walking down the street. And it's an amazing thing when you see saved people. You know what I mean? And I just rolled down the window. I said, excuse me, but you all look like Baptists. And they laughed and said, come on, why did we ever have a great service that night? And when you get in a place like that where it's just us against the world and us against religion and us against the government bosses, it is so overwhelming. There is no opportunity, no chance. And yet those little churches tonight that will meet in a place like a Jordan, the little churches that will meet perhaps in a place like China, little churches that you and I don't even know about that meet in places like North Korea and Iraq and the stands and the rest of the Muslim countries, and they face incredible suffering and incredible persecution. And the Lord God says, you know, you have absolutely nothing. Tribulation, this enormous crushing pressure is the story of your life. And if it's not that, it's poverty. These people aren't poor. This is a level beyond poor. They are absolutely destitute. Because you see, when the emperor says, if you go to your country and there and say, please, Lord, Lord, you just go back to work out of your belly. But if you're not going to throw the incense into the air and worship Caesar as Lord and God, you just have to be destitute. And your friends are going to turn against you. Your unsaved family is going to throw you right out of the family. They're just going to abandon you. You're going to find yourself wondering where the next meal is coming from. And that was the story of the New Testament assemblies in the first century. They had absolutely nothing. Most of them were so destitute. They were so poor. They had nowhere to go, nowhere to turn. I mean, the pressure was outside, the pressure on the inside, the pressure from families. They lost their jobs. They lost everything. And the Lord says, I know, I know. Nobody else cares. And you're in this little assembly, and there you are meeting in somebody's backyard or there you are meeting in some poor little place and you gather together and you sing your hymns and you're just a handful of people and nobody cares and nobody knows 
And your life may be a life of intense poverty, but he said, thou art rich. I guess we would have to look at that verse tonight, and, and you notice the parentheses, but thou art rich. I guess we'd have to say God has a very different definition of rich. Because while we talk about the buildings, and we talk about grand artwork, and, and we are impressed by all the human show. It would appear that the Lord thought a church was a rich church and he had a very different standard. Everybody says you have absolutely nothing. But he said, I think you're a rich church. So what did he tell them to do? What does a rich church do? There's two simple things. The first one's in verse number eight. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. He says, number one, if you're going to be a rich church, you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus, the first and the last. Jesus, which was dead and is alive. Before there ever was a world, Jesus is. Ten million years from now, he still will be. There is never a time where Jesus is not. He is Jehovah, the I am that I am. He is the first and he is the last. And the Lord Jesus is the one who said, I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore. This little church maybe didn't have a government behind them. This little church didn't have the religious bosses behind them. This little church didn't have money. They didn't have finances. They didn't have anything. This little church had people that were so poor. They didn't even know where the next meal was coming from. Why, they had absolutely nothing, humanly speaking. But the Bible tells us it was a church that had their eyes on the first and the last, which was dead as is alive. Folks, we're going to have to wake up and understand that all the things that impress us, they do not impress God. And I've been studying the book of Luke and watching Jesus get real close to Calvary. And my, he really poured on the heat to the disciples. It just got hotter and hotter in the kitchen. And he wanted them to understand, look, I'm going to be gone in a little bit. And before I go, you better not come to this temple and fall in love with blocks and buildings. You better not fall in love with stones that are whitewashed and, and they're almost like marble. You better not look at the gold plate that's on those walls that the sun reflects off of in the morning. All the stuff that people come to and say, whoa, the temple. Why, what a place, what a house of worship. God was not impressed with the thing at all. And he says, you're going to have to get yourself to the place where you understand it is not about stuff and it is not about what the world thinks is impressive. It's not about making us look good. It is not about being cool. It's not about being fancy. It is about loving the Lord Jesus Christ and looking to him. And I'm afraid we have gotten to the place where, where in churches all across America, all houses of religion, we have substituted love for Christ with some program and some package. And people are convinced, you know, that if we just get the right lighting, and if we just get the right technology, and if we just sing the right songs, and if we just do it all in a certain way, that somehow we'll impress people and somehow we'll draw a crowd. And I wouldn't doubt that for a moment. Except, you know, there's not one verse in the Bible that says draw a crowd. Not one time. In fact, when people put on a show, Jesus condemns that. Instead, he finds some little, little assembly with a handful of people that nobody wants to be a part of. The government hates them. The religious bosses and the authorities hate them. The people are so broken, they're so poverty-stricken. There's no government they can look to, and there are no peoples that they can look to. 
All they can look to is the first and the last and know that when we're out of here, Jesus will reign forever and ever. They may not have had anything else, but they love Jesus. And Jesus smiles and says, everybody thinks you're a church of tribulation. Everybody thinks you're a church of poverty. But he said, thou art rich. Because number one, they had their eyes on their eternal Savior. But notice number two, they live for eternity. In verse number 10, the Savior said, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Do you think the Roman government says, who cares about that little thing? That little insect called this assembly in Smyrna. Hey, you would think that this massive Jewish building and temple and, and synagogue, you would think this massive house of religion, that they would look and say, who are those people? They're so poor, they're so nothing. You'd think they just ignore them. But when Satan is infusing religion and Satan is the backbone of government, they can't look the other way. They can't. Satan won't let them. So now the Bible tells us Jesus looks at this rich church that is broken. And Jesus says, fear none of these things, which thou shalt suffer. Notice what he told them. The devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. But he reminded them, ye shall have tribulation ten days. Now, of course, our friends, the liberal seminaries, will have everything that tells us is like <laughs> ten days. The only thing we're sure about ten days is that it's not ten days. It could be ten seasons. It could be ten generations. I love the way they do this. You know, the one thing it can't be is the one thing that it says. What if the Lord understands what a day is, and what if 10 days could actually be 10 days? Well, I don't know how it would work, but let me give you a guess. There's one possibility is that they would take people who didn't throw the incense into the air and say, Caesar's Lord. They would take them and throw them into prison, and they would condemn them to die. And, of course, many of them would be slaughtered, the men anyway, in what was called the gladiatorial games. Now, basically, it was a game where they put two criminals out in the middle of the stadium, and with the crowd cheering, you know, nowadays you just call it wrestling. But back then, they put these two people out there, and they have a fight for the death, and the people loved it. But, you know, it wasn't any good if you put some old guy out there who didn't know what he was doing, and somebody pummeled him. Sometimes it was not man against man. It would be man against beast, you know, and somebody's coming out dead. But they had these games, and so they'd arrest a Christian, and you're going to the gladiatorial games where, hey, you know, they would have a period. It would be from one to two weeks in the middle of that. Who would have thought? Ten days. And for those two weeks or one week or ten days, what they would do is they would give the guy a weapon. They would teach him how to use the weapon. Because if you're going to go out there and you're going to die and you're going to go to the games and the stadium's going to be full, you know, we got to have some entertainment here. So we want to see you put up a fight. So for ten days or a week or two, somewhere in there, they would train them how to fight. Maybe that's what those ten days are. But whatever happens during those 10 days, 10 days can seem like a long time when you're being persecuted. For my buddy, 10 days can seem like a long, long time when he's in some Chinese prison. When somebody's being facing the wrath of a government, 10 days can seem like an eternity. But you know, it still's only 10 days. And Jesus said, the judgment, the wrath, the heartache, the tribulation you face is only going to be faithful 10 days. And then he said in verse number 10, be thou faithful unto death. Be thou faithful unto death. So when the tribulation comes and you find yourself in prison because you say, I cannot, I cannot throw the incense in the air and say, Jesus is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And you find yourself in some cold, dank prison and the rats are crawling all over your body. 
peace and you just hold on and you just count it and you be faithful and you stay true to the Lord and you don't back down on him because whatever trial, whatever persecution, whatever battle you're going to face, he said there's going to come an end to that and then you're going to see Jesus face to face. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give unto thee a crown of life. And then in verse number 10, 11, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be cut off. When the government comes after you, who says you will? And you're looking at your Bible and you're saying, I can't. Jesus said, you be faithful. Faithful unto death. When the religious bosses put you under their thumbs and mock and taunt, and they say, all you have to do is conform. And you say, I can't. Jesus says to his poverty-stricken little church, be thou faithful unto death. You know, when you look at these seven churches, and they're very different, they all have a different story to tell, they all come from a very different place. But I gotta tell you, of the seven churches, this probably was the smallest, the most persecuted, the most beloved one. But looking back, I sure rather be a member of this church than to be a member of some other place where they lost their first love. Can you imagine the members of the church in Smyrna when they meet their Savior face to face? And the Bible says all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And the Bible says perilous times shall come. And the Bible says it's going to get worse and worse. sit back in America and say, you know, look at our brothers in the Muslim countries being persecuted. And, and before that, you know, look at our brothers behind the Eastern Wall being persecuted. Our brothers in Russia being persecuted. Our brothers and sisters in China tonight that are being persecuted. I look at all of the brothers and sisters we know in Christ. We hear their stories and they are facing great persecution. And, you know, in America, we kind of sit back and think, well, what are they doing wrong? Maybe we're asking the wrong question. Because if godly people, Jesus didn't say they might or they could. He says they will suffer persecution. Then why aren't we? Maybe the question is not what are they doing wrong in Russia? Or what are they doing wrong in China? What are we doing wrong in America? When the pandemic started, it's two weeks into it. I had the first meeting where I went and preached and, in a church. And I was up in the state of Montana. And every night. smart guy, but I'm smart enough not to go there. You know, that would be a lady's age. Every wise guy does that one time and they never go there again. But seeing as I'm a long way from Montana, I'd say she's probably something more like that. And, and when she had a couple of years on her, and there she is sitting in that wheelchair every night. And Jesus Christ, you know. 
That's exactly what I'm doing. And the last night, we just started with Bob Dice. You know, I just got to tell you, you've just been a real blessing to me, just being here every night. And this feeble old lady, sickly in a wheelchair, raises her bony fist up. And I'll never forget, she says, and if I perish, I perish. Yeah, exactly. A few weeks after that, I was preaching at a church in California in a very, very large county. And you never heard of this guy, but he's the one guy in his county that never, 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 never shut the door. The police came and told them that if your people come to church at this event, they're arrested. The guy had to send a text message or email to every member of his church. If you come to church this Sunday, you will go to jail. He told me, he said, in the, the way the building is set up, there's a little room up front near the parking lot. He said, I went there real early on Sunday. The sheriff was right there at, at Jefferson Square. He said, I went there and I sat there just in front of that window and just wanted to see what was going to happen. He said, I had no idea. He said, it was amazing. People drive in and see the sheriff. They drive out. But he said, not everybody. And that morning, 150 people walked past the sheriff. He told me, and this is what I've been hearing now for a year and a half, that number one, I'm stunned at some of the people who didn't. And I was really stunned by some of the people who did. And he said, that Sunday morning, I watched people, and here I am two weeks later preaching this church, you know. I'm looking at people who two weeks earlier said on Sunday morning, I'm going to go to church, and if that means I'm going to jail, I'm going to jail. I got to tell you, I got up there to preach, and I felt so dirty. Who am I to stand in this place? And I looked at those people who are willing to pay a tremendous price to literally in America go to jail for the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, that's normal Christianity. That's the way it's supposed to be. And for whatever reason, it hasn't been that way. If we think it's going to stay that way, we're making a big mistake. And if we think it's just about over now, no more problems, smooth sailing from here, then we better get our definition of worse and worse and perilous times down. Because if we're going to do the right thing, then the government of the state of Washington and the government of Washington, D.C. is not going to be our friend. And if we think we can get them to like us, I, I don't know where that comes from. But I got to tell you, I can't find any one of these little churches in the first century having I love the Roman Empire Sundays. I just don't see that. And if we think that somehow we're going to get them to agree with us, you know when they're going to like us? When we take the incense and throw it up into a fire and burn it. Then, then if they'll make a believer, Tribulation is not a, a once-in-a-lifetime. It's something that happens. It's the story of every day. I mean, how many church members can you lose in the gladiatorial games? And, and somehow there they are. They're still hanging in there. And now this little church in Smyrna finds a way to go forward. Everybody hates them. The world hates them. Their neighbors hate them. The government's against them. And yet the Lord says, I don't care what they all say. You may be the poorest thing in town, but you are rich. And somehow Jesus said, you keep overcoming, and I'll take care of you. 20 years later, after Pastor John sent this letter, 20 years later, a fellow became the pastor of the church in Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. It's 20 years later now. He, he was 46 years old, and he would stay like Pastor John in the church uh, for 40 years. He was 86 years old, and you know they caught him. 
they took this 86-year-old man, brought him into the center of Smyrna, and they decided they were going to publicly execute him because of his faith in Christ. When he refused to bow the knee to Caesar, the ones that started building the fire were the religious establishment of Smyrna. They had a stake in the middle of the fire, and they were going to nail him to the stake. But the old preacher said, save your nails. He says, I'm not going anywhere. He went to the middle of that fire, and as the fire was rising and beginning to consume his body, and the pain was intense, he was singing praises and blessing Christ. And just before he finally died, his last words went like this. I give thee thanks that thou hast counted me worthy of this day and this hour that I should have a part in the number of thy martyrs. And Jesus said, you know, the world thinks you're nothing. But in heaven, Jesus said, these are the ones who are rich. We can live for here or we can live for there. We can't do both. We can live for now or we can live for eternity, but we can't do both. We can live for us or we can live for Jesus, but we can't do both. And there is no middle ground between them. Either our lives are sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to say no matter the price, no matter the cost, can't toss the incense. Whatever you have to do, you have to do to me. But the one thing I can tell you, if Berean Baptist Church is going to stay strong and stay right, this world's not going to like you. Father in heaven, I ask and pray that the word of God would be powerful tonight. And Lord, may we understand that we don't need to be great and famous and big and, and cool and liked and popular. But we need to be rich in the eyes of Jesus. And Lord, for all that the world could take from us and even take our own lives, the one thing they can never take is the presence of God and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Him that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Father, I ask and I pray that in this place tonight, you would raise up men and ladies. Lord, give us courage. May we love our Lord. May we love our Bible. May we be willing to say, no matter the cost, no matter the price, I will not bow the knee to a pagan idol, to a pagan religion, to a pagan government. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I wonder if someone here tonight would say, you know, preacher, I'm not saved. And if I were to die tonight, I don't know that I would go to heaven. You know, the Bible talks about being heard of the second death. That second death means to be cast into the lake of fire. And, and what a horrible end we find at the end of the book of Revelation for men and women and young people who have never been saved. But it doesn't have to be because the lake of fire, that second death is reserved for people who are not found written in God's book of life. Tonight, we would love to be able to take the Bible and show you from God's word how you can know that Jesus Christ is your Savior. You can know your sins are gone. I wonder if there's somebody here tonight that would say, Preacher, I need you to pray for me. Uh, I don't know from the Bible that Jesus is my Savior. I want Pastor Reno to help me tonight. Uh, I want to know how God's Word says I can be saved. Would you lift your hand? And I'd love to pray for you. And we'd like to help you from the Bible tonight. Pray for me. I want to know how the Bible says I can be saved. Pray for me, somebody like that tonight. Pray for me. Pray for me. I'm going to pray, and of course, when we play the invitation, Brother Reno's here, and he'd love to help you from the Bible to know you're saved. And this altar is a great, great place for Christians to do business with God because everybody's heart is awfully different, isn't it? And 
And on the outside, we can say a lot. On the outside, we can proclaim a lot. But one day, one day it's going to be time to pay the price in Puyallup, Washington. I will promise you that big box religion and mainstream religion is going to throw the incense into the air. Whether they say the words and believe them or they don't believe them, they will. But it's going to come down to a people of God in a little church like Berean Baptist Church. And it may mean poverty. It may mean trouble. But when we give our life to Jesus, he says we're rich.